Oh, my God. 
25 minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday, Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program.
JM in the AM. Good morning. Welcome to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, uh, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, JM in the AM dot O-R-G. Just trying to find the, oh, there it is. Trying to find the temperature for, uh, <laughs> trying to find the correct temperature for Jerusalem and see if the weather forecast that we have is even close to being accurate. Let's see. Hang on. 14.5 degrees Celsius. Let's see what that comes out to. 58. So we had Israel, or I should say uh, Yerushalayim, at 68 degrees. It appears from the more reliable forecast that it's actually at the 58 right now. All right. Good to know. Welcome to a Friday on this January the 17th, day 16 in the month of Shvat. Hope you had a chance yesterday to tune into our Tu B'Shvat special. It was pretty amazing, as usual. And I want to thank Mayor Weingarten. Added so much to our incredible celebration here at JM in the AM. If you missed any of it, thank goodness we have an archive section at jmintheam.org. You heard Shmuel Levy with Dror Yikra, the Chevra with Kiyitz Beneni, Diaspora's Hu Yiftach, Curry Bone, done by Pia Menta. Kolot, title track to Yaakov Shweki's latest album. And the rumor is that Yaakov Shweki will be on JM in the AM this coming Monday. How do you like that? Shlomo Simcha with Prok, Shal Shelas with Tzadik, a song we wanted to get to yesterday since uh, it applies to uh, Tzmarim, Tzadik Katamar, Ifrach. So we thought we'd get that on for two Bishvat, but we never got around to it. And Regesh, Modani opening things up, and we say good morning. It's Friday on this Erev Shabbos, Parshas Yisro, with candle lighting time at 4.36 on this Erev Shabbos. 4.36, your official candle lighting time. And again, Monday, which is a holiday for a lot of folks, will be a big day for us. Yaakov Shweki on the topic of his brand new CD, expected to join us here at JM in the AM. 32 degrees, 71% humidity, winds are west. At four miles per hour, mostly sunny with a high temperature of 46. And tonight, showers late, a low of 35. Tomorrow, morning rain and snow with a high temperature of 39 degrees. Really? It's supposed to be morning rain and snow for Shabbos? I didn't realize that. Uh, right now, Yerushalayim at 58, Tel Aviv, Haifa at 66, a lot at 73. We're at 32 in Jersey City saying good morning from JM and the AM. Please keep in mind, Shalom Avraham. Ben Pesha Leia for Rafur Shlema, and your help with that is greatly appreciated. Again, that's uh, Pesha, or I should say Shalom Avraham Ben Pesha Leia for a Rafur Shlema, and again, your help with that is um, greatly appreciated. JM in the AM, we continue, and uh, about an hour from now, it'll be time for the weekly update, and I believe... I believe that Malcolm Honeline is still in the Holy Land. If not, we'll speak to him from here. What did he tell us last week? I think he told us last week he's expected back. So we'll speak with him, I guess, from uh, the New York area coming up uh, later in this show. Uh, but again, Malcolm Honeline, about an hour from now, weekly update as we explore the events of this week. And there's a lot to explore. We'll do that coming up at about 740 this morning right here. At JM and the Amber by Yudin, who is in Israel, will join us from the Holy Land at about 8.15. And plenty more coming up if you keep it right here at JM in the AM.
through dark Spreading their morals to extinguish our spark A small band of soldiers with courage and faith Guard the Shabbos Rosh Chayadesh, the covenant of the eighth. A victory miraculous, but a temple in ruin. The lofty Apoyedah they await to resume. Then one flask is found, purity within, engulfed in its flames. A new age The darkest of times, through the bleakest of nights, the sparkle and glow of flickering lights, sustaining our souls so pure and pristine, igniting the embers of hopes and of dreams.
Till I can sing these songs again So I'll take it with me every day Till Shabbos comes and I can say Come join with me my friends Gonna run and all I share J.M. in the A.M. Mizmor Shil Yoma Shabbos. You know, that is the great Aryeh Kunstler here at J.M. in the A.M. Thanks for tuning in on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. And a big thank you to those who tuned in yesterday to our Tubishvat special. It seems that the uh, discussion <laughs> regarding somebody who takes care of trees, right? What, what do you call someone who takes care of trees? It was a discussion on the air yesterday with uh, myself and Mayor Weingarten. And it seems that uh, arborist, not horticulturist, that would be more of a, somebody who does everything, plants and plant life, but an arborist, from what I am told, from listener Barry and listener David, who suggested it on Facebook yesterday. I forgot to mention it. Um, it looks like that's the term I was looking for. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Yisro, candle lighting at 436. And this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Naomi Nachman. She's got another amazing show entitled Table for Two. And the ZK reminds me, that her show today is going to be videoed on our stream as well. In other words, if you go to NahumSiegel.com between 9 and 10 this morning, right after JM and the AM, you'll be able to watch Naomi Nachman in her latest episode of Table for Two. Pretty cool, huh? So that's coming up between 9 and 10 o'clock this morning right here at uh, jmtheam.org and NahumSiegel.com. Monday, Yaakov Shweki expected in studio here at JMAM. If not, if he's not able to join us in studio, he'll certainly be with us via telephone. Yaakov Shweki discusses his brand new CD with us Monday morning right here at JM in the AM. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday is next. Boker Toe from JM in the AM. ההסדר עם טהרן יוצא לדרך. פקחי הסוכנות הבינלאומית לאנרגיה אטומית יבקרו במכרה אורניום באיראן לראשונה זה שמונה שנים. ומנגד, הקלות בעיצומים הכלכליים. כתבתנו נריה קראוס. 
בתקשורת האיראנית מדווחים כי פקחי האו"ם יבקרו בקרוב במכרה בדרום איראן, שם נערכה ביקורת בפעם האחרונה בשנת 2005. עוד בעקבות ההסכם, בכיר בממשל האמריקני הודיע היום שכחלק מההקלה בעיצומים על טהרן, יוכלו באיראן לקבל חלק מהכספים האיראניים שמוחזקים במדינות זרות. על פי הבכיר, האיראנים יוכלו למשוך למעלה מ-4 מיליארד דולרים. הלחימה בסוריה, התקפת רקטות על עיירת גבול בין סוריה ללבנון, לפחות ארבעה בני אדם נהרגו ועוד חמישה עשר נפצעו. דריכות במצרים לקראת פרסום תוצאות משאל העם, כתבנו ג'קי חוגי. התוצאות יפורסמו במסיבת עיתונאים רשמית שתערוך ועדת הבחירות המצרית מחר בערב. לפי הדלפות בלתי רשמיות, שיעור ההשתתפות אינו גבוה, אבל הרוב המוחץ של המצביעים תומך בנוסח שהוצע. מתנגדי המשטר יצאו היום להפגנות מחאה בטענה כי המספרים שתפרסם ועדת הבחירות מוטים ואינם מייצגים את ההצבעה בקלפיות. משאל העם הזה הוא מבחן ראשון למשטר הקצינים בראשות שר ההגנה עבד אל-פתאח סיסי. תאונת דרכים בכפר עין מאהל ליד נצרת, שתי אחיות בנות שש ושנתיים נפצעו קשה ובינוני מפגיעת משאית, מדווחת כתבתנו אורנית פורן. נהג המשאית שלא הבחין בילדות ששיחקו סמוך לביתן דרס אותן. ילדה בת שש נפצעה באורח קשה והיא מפונה באמצעות מסוק לבית החולים רמב"ם בחיפה כשהיא סובלת מפגיעה רב מערכתית. אחותה, פעוטה בת שנתיים וחצי, נפצעה באורח קל והיא סובלת מחבלות קלות בגפיים. נהג המשאית תושב הכפר עוכב לחקירה, נסיבות התאונה נחקרות. ולפני זמן קצר ליד מעלה אפרים בבקעת הירדן נפצע קשה רוכב טרקטורון לאחר שרכבו התהפך, דיווח כתבנו עידו בן בג'י. שר האוצר יאיר לפיד עוקץ את אנשי העסקים הבכירים שמתייעצים עם רבנים. מדברי לפיד בכינוס בתל אביב הביאה כתבתנו עמית תומר מזג האוויר לסוף השבוע, התקררות ניכרת, אבל עדיין יבש. ולסיום, עוד לידה מלכותית בבריטניה. הבוקר נולדה נינה חדשה למלכה אליזבת, והיא תוצב במקום השישה עשר ברשימת יורשי העצר. התינוקת היא בתה הראשונה של נכדתה של אליזבת, זרה פיליפס. מזל טוב. אלה החדשות שעורך אילי לוין. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Wow. 
as I look behind my memories Where I might have been I hear the silver silence Threaded through the din Now my torn lapels my sacrifice 613 sins We mourn her as she stands there The master's not yet in No, the master's not yet in Though she's all that does Though she's all that We did the Kotel song in its entirety from the uh, Diaspora Collection and then started the uh, Kotel song that was done at the big reunion concert years ago. Diaspora, of course. Yoshi Fruchter before that and Yehuda opened up the hour with Aisha's Chaya. Well, one of the reasons we're, uh, we've been in Diaspora the last couple of weeks and, of course, for the last couple of decades as well. One of the reasons I wanted to make sure to get a diaspora tune on this hour is because Simcha Abramson is with us live via telephone. He is the legendary saxophonist for the Diaspora Yeshiva Band. 
And uh, he is with us. He's still in the U.S., coming off their incredible performance in New York this past Sunday and Baltimore this past Saturday night. And he's heading back to Israel in a couple of days. But I wanted to speak with him live on the air before he leaves this area. Simcha Abramson, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much, Nachum. Boy, is it good to speak to you. You know, I met a guy last night. Listen to this. I meet a guy last night in Brooklyn, New York, who comes over to me, you know, just out of the blue. He traveled eight hours round trip after Havdalah to hear an hour of Diaspora Live in Baltimore. What's your reaction to that? Well, <laughs> you know, I think I actually might know who you're talking about. You're serious? But uh, I think maybe he, he talked to me after, but I can't. I, I was sort of in a blur. We were all in a blur after that show. There was real Seattle Dishmaya. But uh, I'm telling you, after that show, I'll tell you, in retrospect, I would have traveled to hear that show. <laughs> that was, it was a real, uh, boy, after not playing for so many years. Well, New York was great, and anybody who was there knows New York was great. The The Baltimore yeah. show, though, aside from being sold out and having that amazing Matzah Shabbos energy, you were able to do close to 20 diaspora songs, which is a dream for exactly. people like me. And we had rehearsed, you know, the last time we played, I think, was 18 years ago, oh, wow. and we played uh, for a half an hour, an hour, whenever. Basically, 30 years ago, we the band uh, ceased to exist, and we rehearsed one day. And we all were a little bit, okay, we got it, 17 songs in one day. Okay, more or less we got it. Motsi Shabbos came, and it was like Hashem was playing us, <laughs> and it just flowed. Uh, I, I, look, I know that it's appropriate to give credit to the one above, and I'm not one to minimize that. But when you think of the tens of thousands of hours that collectively, forget about practicing as a group, as you described, you know, it doesn't happen that often. But the tens of thousands of hours that you guys as musicians have worked and have honed your skills over the last three, even since you originally, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. st- stopped the group. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. And it was obvious, I mean, from what I saw here, it, it was just obvious that we're talking about uh, something you can't duplicate, which is all those hours of experience. It's just incredible. That, that is true. People say, oh, it's like a bicycle. You don't, right. you don't forget how to ride a bike, but... Uh... I have to give tremendous credit to uh, Avram Rosenblum, who uh, is, I hold, he's the best Jewish performer Ooh. of all time. Ooh. That's my that's my own humble opinion. Wow. But he is just, uh, he's captivating, and I don't think he's lost anything. If anything, he's gained. Well, uh, we have experience it's, now. It's funny you mention that. The uh, And first of all, whenever I say something like that, I have to use the word arguably because i got to protect myself. You can go, yes, of you course. Can, you, I, I don't have to. Yeah, you can go ahead and, and, and declare Avram the number one performer. But two things I'll say about him. Number one. What a bracha he has that his voice has not changed a drop in terms of strength over all these years, which is amazing. True. And secondly, my gosh, are you right when it comes to the musicianship on the guitar? I mean, my, you know, who would think that that it could be even better than it was in those days? And it yeah, just... it really, uh, it's incredible. I guess it's maybe it's like a wine. Wine, uh, yeah. wine improves with age. No question. And, Everybody, uh, perhaps, I, I... We've, we're, perhaps we're improving in age, and we're we're reaching a second round of. Uh, 
of a uh, of a new uh, a new series, a new uh, era, knows? huh? We'll a new, see. And everybody's just uh, everybody was incredible. I remember I turned to somebody backstage Sunday. I said because uh, the, the closest musician to me in the group was Ruby, and yeah. I turned to someone and I said, "My gosh, Ruby's on fire!" Like it was just it was <laughs> he just certainly crazy. was. It was he certainly was. Anyway, Simcha, tell us, update us about what's going on. Obviously, you're living in the holy city of Jerusalem. Are are you? I, I, I don't even know in terms of everybody else. Are you still associated in one way, shape, or form with the yeshiva? I'm not only associated, but I, I live in the yeshiva. I, I have been blessed and merited and zoicha and whatever word you want to say to live on Hartzion. And uh, I've lived there uh, basically all my religious life as a bachar and then and married. And uh, I've lived in the same house for 30 years, and I'm at the yeshiva the yeshiva had, unfortunately, setbacks recently in terms of the health of the Rosh Yeshiva. He should live and be well. But then people should daven for Mordechai ben Roni. I mean, Baruch Hashem is still with us, but uh, his sons run the yeshiva, and I'm a little bit involved also in the running, but I'm there. Uh, of course, our clientele has changed. We used to have uh, 90% English speakers. Right. Now we have 90% uh, Hebrew speakers. And all sorts of, uh, it's still all sorts of people come off the street. We have Spanish, we have English speakers, a lot of Israelis, and uh, and the place is still happening. We have up to 60, 70 uh, Talmudim in the yeshiva. You can tell at, the, at lunchtime how many Talmudim you have. So, uh, so, <laughs> so first of all, you're living basically in what we remember as the diaspora backyard, right? Exactly. <laughs> the, the con- I look out my backyard and I see uh, Arizasim and Harabias, and that's my... Uh, yeah, but even but even more importantly, and I say that tongue in cheek, you're you're seeing the area where you used to play all that time, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm still there, and people, you know, once in a while, you know, new new people come around. I'm an old guy; they don't know who I am. Most of the people don't know anything about the music, right? And I start singing along with the song. You know, people will be singing Yivdu Es Hashem, and I'll sing along with them, and they'll turn to me and they say, "Oh, you know that song too." <laughs> But uh, Baruch Hashem, I'm still there, and uh, I'm uh, I'm teaching in the yeshiva, and I learn with the chavrusa, and uh, I'm very blessed and fortunate to be there. I mean, can 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 we visit the yeshiva? Can listeners who are curious to see what the diaspora? Yes, anyone who is in Yerushalayim, you have to go to the uh, to Kever David Amelech, which is a whole different subject now that Mount Zion is right. in danger because the government. Uh, seems insistent upon giving a great part of the building of Kever David Amelech to the Vatican. Hopefully we're trying to counteract that. But uh, you can come to the yeshiva, you can come visit us, you can ask for me, walk in the yeshiva, either any of the Rabbi Goldsteins, Jr., who are the ones who are basically running the yeshiva, and we'd be happy to uh, to have visitors. I would love to come by the next time I'm in Yerushalayim. Come, come. We're, we're, we're happy to have people. And the place is vibrant, and it's alive, and uh, it's, still, it's still there. It is, really is. Is anybody else with the group, either on a, you know, like you, on a full-time basis, or even occasionally at the yeshiva? Anybody from the old diaspora ever come no, by? No, uh, really not. Really not. Those who live in the states are in the states, and uh, everybody in Israel is doing their own thing. Everyone's people people branched thing. out. It was literally a diaspora. Of people came from all over the Jewish world. So when you left, I mean, when the group when the group essentially left the yeshiva, you you just you stayed you stayed back. You, you were... I stayed. I stayed, and it was actually a bracha, not even in disguise, because uh, I was really able to sit down and and start learning 100% full time 
and uh, it, it was a real bracha for me. The, mu- the music was great when it happened, right. and uh, all of those great stories, and I am in the process of writing yeah. a On the Road with Diaspora Yeshiva. Maybe I'll finish it in another 30 years. Oh. But, uh, but uh, it, I stayed there. I stayed instead. See, I took off my saxophone. I took out a Gemara. <laughs> see, this, this is what we always wondered. For those of us who are obsessed with Diaspora, we always wondered if you guys were as obsessed as us. If you're writing a book, it means it meant a lot to you. Simple as that. Well, well, in my house uh, and all of my kids, of course, they like current music, and right. there, there's a lot of great music out there. But they grew up. Uh, most of my kids were born after the breakup of the band, and my kids grew up listening to that music in the house since they were born. And that that's that is the music that then the spirit that in imbibed or imbued i don't know the word actually but it, it <laughs> permeated our house where are you from originally what city i actually grew up in greenwich village Unbelievable. <laughs> oh we've discussed this last yeah. i think when you were on the air 20 years ago we talked about this growing up in lower manhattan right? could be i lived in i lived uh, in the ter- in the tumultuous uh, 60s right. uh, i grew up originally in white plains then we moved to new york when i was uh, 14 and i spent the second half of the 60s in uh, in the village, which was uh, an experience in itself. Now we have to Simcha Abramson, the uh, legendary saxophonist for the Diaspora Yeshiva Band, who's still with the Diaspora Yeshiva, the only member who's still there on Hartzion, and he invites everybody to come and visit him. Um, and they were just remarkable this past weekend in both Baltimore and New York, shows that everybody continues to talk about. Uh, Simcha, we got to ask about your wife. She's the author of the book, Who by Fire. We can't go into the entire story right now, but we've had the opportunity uh, to speak with her on the air. This is a book that came out a while ago. And obviously, and, and by the way, to tie everything together, this terrible disaster uh, that occurred to her actually happened while you were touring with the band in yes. New York, right? Yes, it did. We got to New York. Uh, yes, it was uh, our fourth tour. We got to New York in December 81. And uh, one day later, a call came, and there had been a real, real bad fire, and uh, my wife was burned, and uh, thank God the recovery. Yeah, it was when I was on, uh, and it's another, I'll tell you, I have to give uh, a big uh, thanks to Avram Rosenblum on air, because when I got that call, we were in my parents' apartment in New York. They were in Yerushalayim visiting, and he was with me when I got that call, and I was obviously in shock and he was there for me then and wow. i give him a tremendous thanks for that wow. but uh yes anyway my wife uh, thank god recovered and uh, and the history is in the book but what she does now she basically spends all her time that she's not dedicating to the family and we have a special child in addition which was a tremendous connection to me to ask the other night but uh, she there are you'd have you have no idea how many people get burned in the house day after day. My wife will walk into a kitchen and see cords of a hot water urn dangling down, a toaster in the wrong place, a pot of, and people get burned, kids, and they call her up constantly, what do we do? And she, unfortunately, the burn care in Israel, you would think the opposite, but it is very, very lacking. And uh, she helps people get through the initial trauma physically how to treat burns with honey and different kind of creams and also emotionally she can give from her experience and uh, she is a tremendous tremendous uh, 
help. You know, I, I used to be the star, and she was my <laughs> Rebitson, and now she is the star, and I'm her husband. I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to be her husband. Chaya Malka Abramson is author of the book, Who by Fire? Check it out, folks. Chaya Malka Abramson, Who by Fire? Uh, and and you, you say it again, I'm sorry? Her website is www.cmburnfoundation, one word, cmburnfoundation.com. And two things. You mentioned all the appliances. Uh, the, 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 the tragedy that befell her by fire was through a uh, clothing dryer, correct? Was it a clothing no, dryer? No, it well, was a, a, some kind of a, of, a, of, a, uh, of a fireplace, a gas. It never was clear what happened, but wow. it was a gas leak. And uh, yeah, oh, it was we're a, not a hundred percent sure it, how it, it happened. It was a home gas leak. Yes, it was a home gas leak, and uh, she learned from that. If a person ever is in a house where there's a gas leak, the first uh, you should the first thing is get out of the house. Don't try to do anything. And how ma- how long were you married when this happened? We were married in uh, November '76. And this happened in December '81. Wow! What a challenge! Uh, what a challenge! Unbelievable! It was, and uh, with Hashem's help, uh, we we made it through most of the challenge. We're still we're still living it yeah. in a lot of ways. But uh, does she uh, does she travel to the U.S. to speak on any of these topics, or she's always in Jerusalem? She does. She does travel to the U.S., and uh, that's why uh, that website is good because it gives her schedule. She she does come occasionally. And uh, we have a tax number, or at least we had one. We're, we're in the we're almost. We lost it because of a bureaucratic problem, but we're getting our U.S. tax number back soon. And uh, she does come to speak. She's been coast to coast and and up and down. Um, it, it, just going back to the music for a moment before we wish you. Uh uh, before we before we wish that it does, that doesn't take another twenty years to see you. Uh, um, so I know that this was an amazing trip. It certainly seemed that way. Um, it, based on what you said earlier, that that we may not have seen the la- it sounds like we may not have seen the last of diaspora. Is that something that all four of you, the core group now, uh, yourself and Gedalia and Avram and Ruby, would all agree to that the that the likelihood and and hope is that we haven't seen the last of diaspora. Uh, I th- I think that may be true. That'll I think be great. so. I think we're all open to it, and uh, yeah, we we uh, why not? <laughs> and we got to give kudos to Menachem and Shmuel, and uh, and really, yeah. what made Menachem was uh, a tremendous addition. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think you have. When I say you have, you've not seen the last of us. Well, that is welcome. I news. hope to, uh, and of course, as you you know, you you like to be in the uh, in the huddles backstage. We'll include you in the huddles <laughs> in terms of our, uh, our our repertoire. Uh, well, look, you know, I don't know. I've been openly critical about this about the playlist from Sunday night. Okay, e- I, I hear it. Every- I, I told you, I had a different. Everyone had their uh, playlist. You know, look, you tell it's your hard to. Uh, it's hard to pick out. You're going to pick out three of our. Well, look. You, yeah. tell, you tell your colleagues that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah, and, that's for sure. And just, I, spell, just spell our name right. And I have, been, I have been on the bandwagon for the last week that when Diaspora is asked to do three songs, there's basically a list of seven songs that, <laughs> that those three must come from. 
Yeah. Right, And you should know, by the way, I've been doing this since Monday morning. I get on the phone with other diaspora fans, and I say, name the seven. And all of us come up with the same seven. They're basically... And were the three of those seven? No, that was the complaint. Lois that... Avocena was not there, Correct. Right? Lois Avocena was a phenomenal song, and I would never argue that it's a phenomenal song. But, it's but not... it wasn't in the seven. Correct, exactly. Simple <laughs> as that. You see? Okay, what Simple can you do? <laughs> but isn't it great to have people debating this stuff? I mean, yes, I think it, it is it, great. It must be such a great feeling to know that people... People care so much to make big issues of this stuff. Yes, and I will continue I will continue to make big issues of the minutia of the diaspora okay, Shiva man. We can argue ad infinitum. <laughs> That's for sure. Simcha, and I hope we do. Simcha Malka. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful job. Is Simcha Abramson, the legendary saxophonist from the great diaspora Yeshiva band.
J.M. and the A.M., there they are, there they are, Diaspora. Great conversation with Simcha Abramson. Great conversation with the legendary saxophonist of the Diaspora Yeshiva Band. If you missed any of it, check out the archive section of jmtheam.org. That was great. Yaakov Shweki expected on our program this coming Monday here at JM and the AM. Lots of folks have a day off Monday, so make sure to uh, tune in and spend some time with us as Yaakov Shweki is scheduled to speak with us about his brand new CD. So check that out Monday morning right here at JM and the AM. I want to thank Mayor Weingarten, a phenomenal, really a phenomenal uh, Tubishvat special yesterday. By the way, the word is arborist. I want to thank both listener Barry, who called in, and listener David, who checked this out uh, via Facebook yesterday. And I forgot to mention his suggestion. Arborist is the word, one who takes care of trees. Horticulturist would be um, you know, much more general in terms of plant life and tree life. Arborist is the word we were looking for. How do you like that? Happy anniversary number 13 to uh, Mati and Yassi Zweig. I uh, wanted to wish them an anniversary, happy anniversary yesterday on their anniversary, to Bishvat, but of course I neglected to do so, so I apologize. Happy anniversary, Mati and Yassi Zweig, from all of us here at JM and the AM. Please keep in mind, Shalom Avraham ben Peshalea, Shalom Avraham ben Peshalea for Afur Shlema, and your help with that is greatly appreciated. A reminder that right after JM and the AM this morning, Naomi Nachman with Table for Two, another amazing edition of her show. And um, today, not only can you hear Naomi, today you can see the show. Uh, JMNAM.org uh, yeah, uh, presents Table for Two on video on our homepage at NahumSiegel.com. How do you like that? Um, so just go to uh, NahumSiegel.com and you can see... Naomi Nachman and Table for Two coming up live, or I should say um, uh, coming up in both video and audio form right after JM and the AM. And then, of course, followed by uh, an amazing Erev Shabbos music mix courtesy of our friends at Kedem, who we thank immensely. We want to thank our friends at JewishWorldview.com, who continue to highly recommend to their readers our live stream at jmandam.org. If you want to get all the News, commentary, all the different things. You want to learn how to, uh, or either you want to know how to think or what to think about all the things going on in this world of ours. JewishWorldView.com has amazing and a tremendous number of articles that will help you do so. Malcolm, this is an interesting situation. Malcolm Honline, who's with us every Friday for the weekly update, uh, he told us he'd be back in the U.S. this morning. And officially he is in the U.S., but uh, the plane was uh, so late that he's actually uh, traveling uh, by car from the airport, and that's how we're going to connect with him this morning. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Was it a great journey, and did you make that stop in Greece, as you originally had told us you would? Yes, I uh, I didn't go to Cyprus uh, some of my colleagues did, but I stayed for the funeral uh, for Arik Sharon, and then I went to Greece where I met the president, prime minister, foreign minister, and other leaders in a really two-day whirlwind trip that was very productive and reflects some of the changes in the Mediterranean basin that could have really long-term consequences for the good. 
Well, you, uh, you of course, are referring to the world political angle of it. So much of the news from Greece over the last, I don't know, year or two in this area has been about the economic situation. Were you able to get a handle speaking with leaders in that region about what's going on with that situation at this point? Look, it remains very serious. The unemployment rate is still very high. It's over 25%, especially amongst young people. It's even higher. Uh, the There is a turnabout. Things are getting somewhat better, but it'll be a long-term project to, to really revitalize it. And they have the problems of the influx of foreigners. And, of course, the big issue that has gotten a lot of attention is the Golden Dawn Party, which is a neo-Nazi extremist party. But uh, they arrested uh, some of the leaders this week and have outlawed the party, essentially. Uh, they sit the parliament, but they've been very isolated, and the government has taken bold and concrete actions which I hope will be replicated in other countries where these kind of extremist uh, parties like Jobbik are, are rising in Hungary and um, all over Europe, in fact. Uh, and before we talk about the funeral, uh, why did uh, part of the group uh, go to Cyprus? What was there? Well, the truth is that this we're talking about an Israel-Cyprus-Greece alliance, uh, or an uh, informal alliance, I should say, connection where everything from common tourism, energy exploration, uh, security issues, Israel and Greece have been doing a lot of joint exercises and training. Uh, the Greeks have been very uh, open to, to Israel's needs for strategic depth, etc. So this is um, uh, this is a budding relationship, uh, and Cyprus is a key element in it as well. So they went to Cyprus meet the president and prime minister and other officials. What were your impressions of the Sharon funeral? And I, I, I mean uh, n- not to look back at his entire life right now, but in terms of the ceremony and event itself, uh, I mean, you, you were there as an insider and uh, and saw how many people from around the world attended. What were your impressions of the funeral? Well, I think it was very dignified. It was extremely well organized. I mean, split second. And people, leaders who were there who told me that they contrasted it to the Mandela funeral, which seems to have been very chaotic and uh, uh, not organized well. Uh, They told me here that, uh, I mean, everybody was handled. There weren't that many world leaders, of course. It wasn't comparable to the Mandela turnout or or others. But, uh, you know, Vice President Biden was there, Tony uh, Blair, many others uh, who came. And uh, and I have to say also that it, it, it... I think would have been something he would have appreciated that obviously the military component was very strong in terms of the speeches, people he was closest with, who generals and others who spoke about him and that uh, the farm his kids, his sons uh, spoke. Uh, they did not at the Knesset ceremony, which is guided by established protocol, I think, as to who gets to speak and not. Interesting. And uh, one of the things that uh, was noted about Zev Hever was there and spoke, an old friend of Sharon from Gush Amunim, somebody who was very critical of him during the time of the disengagement. Was that a surprise that he appeared there? It was. Uh, to me, it was a surprise. But, uh, you know, Sharon's life went through many phases, and whatever differences people had, there was always a sense of loyalty, especially amongst the uh, camaraderie of the generals and the military people. But... Uh, you saw the spectrum uh, of people who turned out. Uh, I was fortunate to be in the front row, so I could see everybody on the opposite side. You know, they were facing each other and see all of the spectrum of political and religious leaders who came. And uh, there was not, there were not many from the United States. Um, uh, Elliot Engel and 
uh, Debbie uh, Schultz, uh, Wasserman Schultz was there um, uh, with the vice president, and uh, the organizational representation was very limited. But the, uh, you know, amongst Israelis, and especially during this, the time he laid in the state, and you saw the thousands of people who came by really represented the spectrum of the Israeli population. Uh, might one of his sons go into Israeli politics? Uh, some people I spoke to said they had the feeling that at least one would. Yeah, that's been speculated a, a lot, um, but I don't know. I didn't see any sign of it. Uh, also, WikiLeaks reported that Sharon, as prime minister, planned more withdrawals after the Gaza disengagement. Is there any reason not to believe that? There are these reports. Uh, I asked people. Nobody seemed to have any kind of confirmation about it, but uh, that report was uh, circulated. But it died very quickly, so I don't know whether you know, anybody found any substance to it. And rockets were fired from Gaza after Sharon's funeral. Timing coincidence or not? No, not at all. But there have been a series of attacks in the days before, and uh, one of the reasons why there was hesitancy to have the, farm, the funeral at the farm was the fear that they would um, fire, and they did, and they landed some kilometers away that never posed an immediate threat, and the Iron Dome was deployed and knocked down five missiles in one day, uh, but this, there is an escalation clearly from Gaza, and the IAF uh, responded appropriately, and uh, yesterday it seemed to have been quiet. And to sum it up uh, in terms of uh his life now that the funeral has taken place. Uh, essentially, it's just, I guess, one big conflict. Depending on who you are, you remember Ariel Sharon in, uh, in many, many different ways, right? That's true. And, look, you can't deny his contribution, his bravery, his courage, what he did in the 73 war and other times. And he went through, clearly, some major changes. I don't know that we'll ever understand exactly why. I heard various people commenting and speculating or claiming they had discussions. I talked to him many times. I had a very good relationship with him. Um, and I honestly do not know what motivated him on, on a lot of the decisions and things that we had to talk about. But I think no one can deny his consistent concern for the state, for his, as a Jewish state, and also for the Jewish people. He cared very much about what people in the diaspora believed and, and uh, were concerned about and said that first and foremost he is a Jew. He said that every time he came to the States and in speeches in Israel as well. Fascinating figure, really unbelievable. True. And when you think about the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys in his career, I don't know if anybody ever had such extremes, just unbelievable, including the last eight years, of course. Um, all right, this is the story of the day. I'll start with this only because you were just there, so I'm curious. Did you know about the Netanyahu-Abdullah meeting before it took place? Uh, I was in Greece when it took place, but uh, I did meet with the Prime Minister before I left. And uh, I did not know exactly when, but I did know that uh, that they talked about having a meeting this week. So how unusual is this? Obviously, it's a headline, and everyone, you know, calls it. He met with him three or four times over the last year. It's not that unusual for the two of them to get together. This is, a, you know, especially critical time with the peace process and other things going on for them to discuss. And uh, But it, it's not that unusual. They do talk quite regularly. So what do we call this? Is it a negotiation? Is there a dispute? Is this just a get-together to make sure everyone's on the I, same page? I wouldn't page? say it's a dispute because I think they agree on most things. I think it's a consultation is uh, the best way to put it. And consulting on what? What types of issues? On the peace process or concerns.
concerns about the Jordan Valley, and that is, you know, Jordan's concerns are as great as Israel, maybe even greater, uh, to talk about the developments in the region vis-a-vis Hamas and, and uh, um, what's happening in Syria, the movement of the refugees, and, and concern regarding Iran. Uh, and is the uh, the Jordan? I guess this is a um, uh, maybe in some ways a rhetorical question because it seems that it applies to every country uh, in the Middle East at this point. But would you say that Jordan's concern for Syria and for Iran is as strong as Israel's? For Syria, absolutely, uh, because they have a million refugees there, and the number grows. And of course, there's a big border. And Syria always had designs on Jordan as part of what they considered Greater Syria at one time. But the uh, the concern regarding Iran is very great, especially given developments in Iraq with the feeling of Iran taking over, or certainly through Maliki, the head of the government, and the, the Sunni-Shiite divide, which would affect them as well. So the instability in the region impacts Jordan disproportionately because of its own balances within its population and uh, the, the nature of the of the government there. Yeah, I spoke to some high school Israel advocacy students this week, and I'm dedicating this question to them. Malcolm, why is it that, as compared to other countries, Israel has what seems to be a much stronger relationship and simply get along better with Jordan? Because they have common interests. They have a common border that's very important. Their concerns regarding what happens within the Palestinian Authority areas is as great as Israel's because it spills over to them, where they have a two-thirds Palestinian population already, where you have Muslim Brotherhood active, you have uh, this influx of of, uh, refugees. Uh, All of these issues really bond Israel and Jordan together, and uh, they cooperate. The military security cooperation has always been been outstanding, even though the king, as is understandable, has at times be critical. But the level of cooperation has been sustained. Malcolm Honline, weekly update. Um, <laughs> this uh, dust-up between the Defense Minister of Israel and the Secretary of State in the U.S. Could you first tell us what really happened in terms of Yalon's statement, and then I'll ask you about whether his apology was necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I actually spoke the, the day before. We had a, I had a meeting with him, and... Um, Look, there's deep concern all over about the substance negotiations, the you know 11, 12 visits already by uh, Secretary Kerry, many other things that uh, have impacted. And um, he gave a private interview, an off-the-record private interview with uh, Shimon Schiffer, who then proceeded to publish some of the content. So it violates you know a basic uh, media rule and principle, but the uh, you know, of course, when somebody says something like that, it's going to get a lot of coverage. He basically said that, uh, I, the way I understood it, give the man his Nobel Peace Prize, so he'll leave us alone, right? Basically, that's that's the way it went? Well, that was the that was the last thing he said. But he said he talked about it being obsessive, uh, right. sets of interest, that he right. was a messianic view, and what the feeling is that they... But but I, I don't know that, that those terms are right. I do think that he has an inordinate focus on this, because he feels that it's a place of the movement. It is an air of responsibility that was given to him. Uh, look, the, If you look at the rest of the region, what's happening in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Syrian negotiations, uh, Iran, there isn't much there that you can point to with great pride and say we, we've had a great accomplishment yeah, in the deal with true. Iran, which I think we'll, we'll talk about, but which has a lot of flaws and a lot of problems. Um, so this is the area, and it, it is the thing for which people get Nobel Prizes, and the president gave him this this arena to play in and to to see what he could do. 
So he is very determined to do it. So with all that in I'm sorry? I was just going to say, but there are a lot of things that, you know, don't come necessarily visible to the public. There's supposed to be side understandings or the assurance that he gave the Palestinians about the 67 borders, many other things that uh, complicated. But he has had regular communication with the prime minister, on a, sometimes two, three times a week or more. And he has visited there, as I said, uh, I think a dozen times. So with all that in mind, was the Yalon apology necessary? If you notice, he did not apologize. He said that if the that he didn't intend to uh, insult, and if he took his words as if it was hurtful or harmful, he apologized for that. He did not retract <laughs> what he said. Yeah, correct. But but certainly his uh, those who are not al- aligned with him in the Knesset uh, took it as an apology. They were they were upset that he well, apologized. Certainly, he had to say something to diffuse the situation. Right. And what was? What, did Bibi have a reaction to this? Uh, B.B. made statements reaffirming the relationship with Kerry and trying to contain the damage. I read an article, and I forgot who wrote it. It was on the Jerusalem Post website, that basically everybody's got to chill out because if we think that one insult like this is going to make the U.S.-Israel relationship collapse, then you have another thing coming. And I thought that was, that was there was a little bit of truth to that, that uh, you know this is not the disaster that some people in the media are painting it to be. And... and uh, you know, we also have to look at the fact that many times language is used that is unfortunate, whether intentional or not, as the United States, uh, some of the statements that came out of the National Security Council against senators who didn't support, who, who supported the legislation on Iran and didn't support the administration position, and they hinted that they want to drive to war, they were warmongers, these kind of ter- this terminology, this is unacceptable. Right. Uh, and you didn't see apologies for it. Uh, coming forward, but they certainly toned down the rhetoric. Malk, oh. It happens. Should it happen? That's a good question. Was it wise? You know, and becomes a distraction. Uh, also, a good question that uh, I guess we'll know in time. Understood. Malcolm Honline, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Again, you were just in Jerusalem, so it gives me more of an impetus to uh, bring this up uh, today. Will the new police station uh, in the Harazetim Cemetery on the Mount of Olives, will it in fact help uh, deter all the rock throwing that has become commonplace up there? I certainly hope that it will. It, it's got the station is there. The problem is that there's nobody in it, and I've had I had a series of discussions. Um, uh, about this, and I hope that it'll be uh, that we're moving towards rectification. The government is allotting a lot of money. Oh, so when they say uh, March, fir- when they say March first, that means that they're actually going to pay attention and man the station on March first. That's when it's going to begin. It's, it's, the, 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 no, the station is there, the police station, the, um, and there were people in it periodically, but not on a sustained basis. And that's that's the problem. And that's what's going to change. In other words, they're going to make an effort. Well, also, more cameras are going to be up there. Uh. More uh, people will be uh, um, assigned to it, including uh, Shinbet, which is very important. They also talking about closing the entrance, one entrance to the school, which is where most of the problems emerged from. And um, that, that uh, would make a difference. Also, we found out that the school closes at three. And the buses pick them up at five or one and five, one and three, and that during all that time they were able to do a lot of mischief. 
A lot of downtime. You know what that leads to. Uh, the Prime Minister of Canada is arriving in Israel after this weekend, correct? Well, I just wanted to say that there is a serious approach and that the Security Cabinet did address this this last week, which is a big progress and largely due to the committee here and the Lipinskis and others who have been really devoted to it. All right, so there's movement in that area. The Prime Minister of Canada is set to arrive in Jerusalem beginning of next week, correct? Absolutely. Ha- with a delegation, I think, of 200 Canadian leaders, Jewish leaders, business leaders, others. It's a huge thing, and as you know, he's been outspokenly pro-Israel. So they're looking forward to him with uh, great anticipation. And have we discovered why yet? Not that anyone needs a reason to <laughs> to be allied with Israel, but is it something about his background, relationships, associations that has given him uh, this amazing desire to publicly laud the Jewish state constantly? Uh, I think, first of all, it is, it is personal. I think it is also some people have said to me, you know, his religious views and other views that his view of the world. But it wasn't isolated. You know, during the Sharon's uh, um, funeral, one of the visitors was the uh, an official from, uh, I think, the Prime Minister of Australia. And she made a remarkable statement that it's calling the settlements illegal under international law is wrong. She said, I defy you to show me one international law that they violate. Wow. So we have friends around the world. And uh, Greece... I said it's a remarkable turnabout. Other countries, and even some in the Middle East, are looking to Israel very differently than they have in the past. Uh, we keep reading about, I mean, you, you mentioned the Nazi parties in Europe, and we keep reading about the uh, European Union and concerted efforts to uh, uh, condemn Israel or boycott Israel. It's good, to, it's good to hear that there's some countries on this globe that are taking a different approach. Yes, but we, I want to, just to, that we not uh, minimize the impact of the boycott movement. We spent the whole day yesterday in consultations. We had people from Europe and all over the world came to Jerusalem. And we spent literally the whole day talking about it. And in America, it's serious, and it became more clear because of the American Studies Association issue. Yeah, but isn't the epicenter, isn't the epicenter of the boycott uh, a trend Europe? Isn't that the... Uh, yes. It is. Yes, but I'm saying that, that when you listen to them and how much... They encounter on a daily basis this problem. I mean, we counted periodically, increasingly. We saw Modern Languages Association. And why, I know any of your listeners and others were always curious or questioning about why I put so much emphasis on this issue of the delegitimization. And I keep telling you that it is one of the challenges of our time. It is next to Iran the most serious issue we face. Right. No question about that. Have you landed yet? It sounds like you're still uh, riding the plane over there. No, I'm here <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> when we said we were speaking to Malcolm during the tail end of his trip, we meant it, folks. Prime Minister Netanyahu has declared that he would meet with the president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, uh, but insists that Tehran must be willing to recognize Israel. Actually, to be more accurate, he said he would consider a meeting if Iran went ahead and recognized Israel. I don't think we're going to have this problem to face in the very near future, right? I think that uh, Rouhani's comments would indicate that uh, they shouldn't pack his bags at this point. <laughs> right. That the if you, if you look at some of the things that he said, this is a guy with whom we've signed this, or well, we didn't actually sign an agreement. It's one of the important points is that it's an understanding, a working plan, and... We don't know what side agreements are. There are all sorts of reports about additional 
components that we may not know about. We've seen the this week the Russians announcing this $1.5 billion a month uh, oil deal, the Iranians, a $50 billion deal. All the time we're being told that the sanctions regime is sustained. It is, but it's, this is clearly major breakthroughs, and they are, and Rouhani uh, speaks about it all the time, emphasizing what uh, what what the benefits they got, and they actually he actually used the term that America surrendered in this deal, and the fact is that they are allowed to continue research on the centrifuges, the more and more advanced centrifuges, which is very troubling, and and in one of the discussions with the U.S. official, they said, so what if they have the gold? What, what can they do? It's just value for value, and it's not. Gold is what enables them to bypass the sanctions that are imposed on the on the banks. And we know that these new, new uh, generation centrifuges are being allowed to be used to be tested for research. But all of that means is that when the deal actually collapses or formally collapses, that they'll be able to rush ahead with a much faster uh, uh, process of enrichment. Right. The other thing is the IEA has been given inspection. I mean, these are the points that are being raised as the good things. Uh, but in fact, they're not. They say themselves that they don't have enough access to really do a thorough job on monitoring what the, what is happening there. And in fact, I read somewhere this week that one of the nuclear officials in Iran had said that uh, within a day we're back up and running. Like, don't don't worry about this agreement or not this agreement. It's not going to stifle us in the least. And they have an extra ton of stuff that they have been able to to enrich. So I'm still told that the basis will be the November amounts, the 7,000 tons that they had enriched. I don't know if it makes a difference if you have 7,000 tons or 8,000 tons. The fact is that they can enrich quickly. The new centrifuges will enable them to do it even more quickly. And, and they're being very blatant in their internal statements. They still talk about, about defeating the United States, about express extending their influence, and uh, and while we would like to see a resolution, it doesn't seem that what we're being presented with, we see that increased activities backing Hezbollah, backing uh, Assad, uh, increased activities in uh, in Iraq, and many other things which are for, for uh, furthering the instability of the region, not the stability. What does it mean that on the 29th of January, you and inspectors will visit nuclear mines in Iran for the first time in nine years. What, what is that? What is a nuclear mine, and what is this all about? Okay, this is, these are the uranium mines where they uh, will be able, for the first time, to inspect the facilities. This is part of the deal to look at all the phases of enrichment, which means mining uranium, processing uranium, uh, taking it then to the to the enrichment facilities, enriching it, weaponizing it, and putting it on a missile to deliver. A lot of steps so, huh? under the agreement. R&D, research and development, is not impacted. The missiles are not. The weaponization is not. But they do have periodic visits. But these are arranged visits or supervised visits, I think they're called, which means that, uh, you know, they will have to make an appointment. They can't just drop in and say, hello, I'm here for tea, and I want to see what you're digging out of the ground here and what you're processing. Israel's position and many others feel that there should be no enrichment, no processing on Iranian soil. But what get what gets me is if this step is important in this in, you know in the entire process, I mean I I always thought there was I don't know some type of shuttle of UN inspectors into Iran even you know even even during times when there wasn't a formal agreement wasn't there wasn't there always some type of UN inspection of this process over the last few years or am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. It's a very, it's actually a very good question because it's 
it's very unclear for most people. There were periodic inspections of designated facilities. They were these were had to be arranged. They knew in advance when they were coming. But most of the facilities, like Parchin, which we have talked about, I know this gets technical for people, but it's really important. The, the, the military facilities have never been breached, and they're not being inspected now under this deal. Parchin is where we believe that they did the experimentation on weaponization, and that facility has not been visited. So what this does is it does broaden the inspection. It takes them into the Iraq plutonium facility. Now, again, I hear that there was the stepped-up activities to... to finish as much as possible for the deadline of January 20th, um, 29th, when, when all this activities is, is supposed to stop and the agreement uh, implemented. Uh, the enrichment to the 20% enriched stuff is supposed to be out of there in three months. Six months, that was a, a change, but we'll wait and see how fast they do it. Uh, and, and a lot of this stuff is uh, un- can be undone, just as the sanctions release can be released. Right can be reversed, they say, uh, I think it will be very hard because so many people will have entrenched interests and so many things will have happened that it's not just something you can shut off and, and shut on. What, what is clear is that Tehran has continued to grow its nuclear program. They are producing new generations of the, uh, in uh, Natanz and Fordo, uh, centrifuges for their facilities. They have 19,000 centrifuges in place. They're, they're continuing uh, their expansion in the region. And look how Zarif visited Lebanon, visited Jordan, visited other countries, the foreign minister of Iran, that is. Uh, so they're doing anything but backing off now. All right. So as I understand it now, and I think I'm starting to get it a drop, so the 29th is essentially the deadline for the agreement in that at that point, U.N. inspectors will have the right or will exercise their right to start from the very beginning of the process and inspect every step of the process that they are allowed to. They're saying that they still do not have enough access, that right. they have limited access, but they don't have enough to really do the job right, which means that we have to make sure that the IEA should be given greater access, greater number of inspectors uh, that can go in and on a regular basis monitor exactly what is happening there. But the, the deal now goes into, into effect. What the, the IEA people have said that that, that they increased access to Iran to monitor the agreement, um, but it says it needs to investigate suspicions that they may have uh, worked on designing a bomb and to look at other facilities, and um, uh, the, the, all of this needs uh, much more, uh, much more uh, sophisticated investigation. And the reports that they have a GPS-guided ballistic right. missile under development, these are all things that they would like to learn about. Is there any level of investigation? that you'd be satisfied with? Meaning, is there, you know, just we talk about sanctions and, and alternatives to military strikes, is there any level of inspection, better word than investigation, is there any level of inspection that you would be satisfied with? I would say if they send it all to OU Mashkichim and we can have full access <laughs> to, to inspect everything, that may be, but the, the truth is that they have the ability to create clandestine facilities. I don't know that we'll ever know the full truth. It's a big country. It's 70 million people, big area. They have a record of doing things in secret. So could there be, would I be surprised if tomorrow it came out that they had additional facilities where they're testing, where they're doing research and development, where they may have additional centrifuges? I would not. I think these are the main facilities, and, and you know, putting them on hold right now is a good thing. The problem is that 
this deal is is full of, uh, of so many loopholes, and there's so many things that uh, um, you know mitigate against seeing them uh, having gone through some sort of uh, metamorphosis and, and long-term uh, change. He says that, as I told you, when he when he puts things in the term that the surrender of the great Satan, the great Satan meaning the United States, and that the Geneva Agreement itself is um, has broken the wall of sanctions, and he, he boasts about you know the achievement. And this is the same guy who did this when he was negotiator in uh, in nineteen uh, in, in two thousand and three, and wrote a book about how he lied and obfuscated. It. I mean, and we see the same per pattern emerging here. It sounds like there's no level of inspection that you'd be satisfied with. It sounds like to me. And by the way, the other option which uh, we haven't discussed in a while. It's also possible. You mentioned that they could have clandestine activities going on, and uh, you know, other. You wouldn't be surprised if you found out that, uh, if any of us found out that they had other areas where they were building these types of facilities. There, there could be allies as well. They, they could be distracting the entire world while a neighbor of theirs is going ahead and helping them develop these weapons. Is that far fetched? Is that a little too crazy? Not at all. Remember the the reactor in Syria that Israel uh, eliminated was an Iranian North Korean project. Right. So there you and have it. We, and we know that they're doing a lot of things uh, with North Korea. So we are, we are constantly looking at Iran and with their alliances in both South America and other areas of the Middle East and other areas of the world, who knows what they're controlling at this point. And, and remember, Iran today, I, when we were in Greece, they showed me uh, um, graphs which showed the missile range from Iran covering Greece. So uh-huh. as much as we do those things in regard to Israel and the Middle East, they're worried. I mean, other countries, well. European countries, are looking at this, and they're worried, and they know what a, what a danger it poses because Iran is operating throughout the Balkans, the Baltics, the, everywhere. They're trying to expand their influence, and they have today over 400 ballistic missiles, and some of them can carry a 750 kilogram uh, warhead. Syria has two to three hundred. They've used some of them in the war. Some are probably disabled. They have tens of thousands of uh, of rockets between Syria and Hezbollah, and tens of thousands more of the light rockets, which are being turned into smart rockets, according to reports, where they put on uh, sensors and homing sensors and GPS. Well, because part of the problem was that all these rockets would be fired, but they didn't have, you know, missile guidance systems, so they could hit anywhere. Today, even these smaller rockets are now being equipped with uh, uh, more up-to-date homing devices and sensors, as well as GPS uh, guidance systems. Wow. So there's a whole new level of danger, but this um, uh, range of strike uh, w- capability includes Europe, as well as you know, Greece being one part of it, but it can strike up to the heart of Europe. It's amazing. Uh, we, we concentrate so much on Israel, we don't consider what other countries are going through in terms of their own security vis-a-vis Iran. It was, there was a story this week, which, I don't know, it seemed to be somewhat of a big deal, about Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State mulling over the possibility of giving Israel a green light for a strike on Iran. is that, I mean, I would, I would imagine anybody in her position, including the Secretary of State today, is always mulling over that question. Is this a news story? Well, I don't think it's a news story. I, uh, I had the opportunity to discuss uh, uh, with her before she became a, a Secretary of State, and I know she had very strong views in Iran at the time. Uh, but during the tenure of the first uh, Obama administration, we did not see that kind of, of strength. Was there and is there always going to be that option of, you know, saying, of taking hands off and letting Israel do what it has to do? 
you know, we'll have to write, wait till the next volume of our memoirs comes out and just chance to really put it in uh, perspective. <laughs> but other officials, I know for sure, have always talked about it. What you said was important before about, you know, we focus on Israel. Right. But the reason we do is because Israel is the only country that's standing up now to Iran. Right. If you look at all the rest, they're collapsing in front of them. They're sending trade delegations. They don't want to get in on the money. And they don't think about the potential that this could be, you know, a major change in the whole region that Iran allowed to rejoin the international community without having given up anything will pose such great dangers in the future to all of them. But you ha- there's got to be other countries you could put in that category. I mean, even Jordan. I mean, you know, we just discussed at the beginning of this conversation. They of course, ass- but they, but, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, they're much more worried. Even than Israel, they say Israel can defend itself. We can't. Many countries, Bahrain, the, all of the, the Gulf area, oh, so and many others. They're not taking as active a role because they simply don't believe they have the capability. Israel, they look to as one that has the capability. That's what they say, that Israel's our only hope to, to do it. They said, we'll condemn them, but it's our only hope. <laughs> we'll condemn them. They're our only hope. Doesn't that sum it up? Are you for or against this uh, ban of the word Nazi in Israel? I, I don't know that you can really ban individual words. It's the usage. I mean, what, what somebody taught you, it depends the context in which it's used. I do think, though, that extremism and the, and the danger of using language and and minimizing it, and, and it's not just the use of the word Nazi, you know, this news, Quinell, whatever it's called, the salute, the Nazi salute, right. is spreading to all the sports in Europe. Now, this is a way of expressing anti-Semitism. You know, you can't say Heil Hitler because it's against the law in many countries, but you do this Quinell, which is was divided by the comedian Dugan, who's blatantly anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. Um, and and it, the message was clear to people who, who knew what it was. It was more subtle. Now it's less so as people recognize it. And when sports figures use it, some recently apologized. They didn't know what it meant. They just did it. Now people know what it means. And when you see it, you've you got to know it. And incitement is becoming a big issue in the Middle East. The prime minister has talked consistently with U.S. officials and others about the PA. And what makes it unique in the PA is that it's government-sponsored. It's coming through official media uh, broadcast, television programs, uh, textbooks, many other things. And I know for, for, again, it's the kind of thing that people tend to dismiss and they say, well, you know, we're all used to it. No, this is a major obstacle to peace, and it's got to be portrayed, and there has to be a constant effort to expose. And I think, in general, when it comes to the delegitimization and the efforts to demonize and too often we dismiss the words that people say, why do you fight over this expression or that expression? I think now the time has come that we have to raise the profile, that we have to go after every one of them like we did with the American Studies Association. We have to nip it in the bud right away before it spreads because it's becoming too commonplace. We have to be more aggressive and in intelligent ways. It doesn't mean, you know, we declare nuclear war every time something happens. You have to do it in a proportionate way. But it has to be very clear that this is unacceptable and we're not going to back off. Look, there are other kind of developments, too. You know, the Egyptian vote, the, the uh, stability of Egypt, which would be a, a great asset if the military were able to, to establish it. And now they're, they're talking about going after Hamas uh, now that they uh, have hopefully neutralized the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and certainly are taking a more aggressive stance in, in the Sinai. Um, so, the, the, I mean, there are uh, positive uh, developments. But um, if, if you look at what... What the, the nature of, to go back to your original question, about the changing nature of the discourse right. and where Nazi salutes and Nazi references have, that the, the, the hate behind it, the, the danger, the, the true story, 
now being lost. Yeah, but I was asking from the uh, from the uh, point of view of this proposed Israeli bill that uh, they don't want the word in, used in Israel to you know one against the other. That's what they are. right. Well, it shouldn't be used. It should be we we, we mitigate the the true story of the Shoah by doing it. Right. But again, you know the, the the laws are different. America doesn't have libel laws, for instance. We right. we we can't outlaw Holocaust denial. We can take action against it. But in Europe, it's against the law. In Israel, right. it's against the law. Um, so, now, somewhat different. Before we wrap up, I'm always curious about this, and I forgot to ask you at the beginning of the conversation. Is there an Orthodox or what you would call a traditional community in Greece? There's Chabad, and the community, especially in Saloniki, which was a great Jewish community, right. you know, the ports used to close down on Shabbos and Yantuf because the, all the stevedores were Jewish, and right. Jews controlled the ports. Uh, it was a... a Magnificent community. There are now a little over 5,000, maybe up to 6,000 Jews in all of Greece. Uh, but they have, uh, they have functioning synagogues and kosher food. And, um, in Saloniki, there are also facilities. The government, by the way, has invests a lot in emphasizing the Jewish history, the Jewish past, the Jewish connection. It's, it's really widely discussed. Interesting. All right. Welcome back to the U.S. My pleasure. Thank you. It's good to to be back, I guess. But Jerusalem was so beautiful. The weather has been beautiful, the, and business seems to be doing pretty well. A lot of visitors there. Tourism record month in December. So a lot to be uh, to be appreciative of. No question about that. Malcolm Honline, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll reconvene next week. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here. At JM and the AM. Speaking of Israel, we have the pleasure and privilege of hearing from Rabbi Yudin today from the Holy Land. How incredible is that? Reminder, candle lighting at 436 on this Erev Shabbos Parsha's Yisro. And this time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Well, uh, for you, it's good morning, and for me, it's good afternoon. Almost Shabbos in Beit Shemesh, and like the name is, the sun is shining here. This week, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Yisro. According to the Chinuch, there are 14 and 3, 17 mitzvos, 3 positive mitzvos, and 14 mitzvos. Losa say, thou shalt not. Before I even discuss something from Parshas Yisro, I just want to share with you a delicious Gemara in Sanhedrin 98a. And the Gemara says, if you want to know, comes along Ravi Abba, when is it that we are approaching the end of our exile and the time of the redemption? So Rav Appa says, There's no clearer sign of our approaching that time. Namely, and he cites a verse from Yechezkel, Ezekiel, chapter 36, talking about Hare Yisrael, the mountains of Israel, Anpechem Titenu, your branches, you shall give piryachem tisu your fruits you shall bear la mi yisrael to my people israel who are 
coming, not just because yesterday was Tu Bishvat, we had the privilege of eating fruits from Eretz Yisrael, but the economy of the land and the land producing as it does is a very sign of a divine wink that we are privileged to see today in Eretz Yisrael. And amazing, this connection between the land and the Torah of our people was even seen approximately a month ago in that very famous snowstorm that hit the country and literally shut down cities and Shomron, etc. If you look on the day when the snowstorm came, it corresponded to the Dafyomi, which had the very famous story of Hillel on Friday night, and the snow came Thursday night and Friday night, exactly the way the Talmud tells us in Tkufas Teves, in the month and the season of Teves, and Hillel was, as we know, covered and blanked by the snow, and as he came down and brought a great, fresh excitement, leadership to our people, we pray that that's exactly the times in which we are living today. In this week's parsha of Yisro, we have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be looked upon, interestingly, as part of the process of conversion that the Jewish nation underwent. We learn that a convert has to, A, undergo Mila, circumcision, which the men did prior to coming to Sinai, Tevila, going to the mikvah, which the entire nation did prior to the revelation in Sinai, and finally, Nasev the acceptance of mitzvot, what we did at Sinai, that's what the Geir has to do. And in addition, the Talmud tells us, we can't expect the Geir, the potential convert, to become an authority on all 613. So we do, we tell them some of the Kalos and the Chamuros, some of the easier mitzvot and some of the more challenging ones. And the rabbis tell us that the Ten Commandments represent this kind of cross-section of our Torah, of some of the easier, more challenging mitzvot. And I would even suggest that you bring the Chumash to the night, to the table tonight, open it up, and discuss at your dinner table which ones of the Ten Commandments would you categorize as the easier ones, and which one would you categorize as the more challenging one, difficult one. I'd like to focus for a moment on the last of the Ten Commandments, Lo Sachmot, you are not to covet, which the next one has. You're not to desire. Eat. How can the Torah ask of of something which is almost against our nature? You live in one kind of a house or apartment, and you come to 
somebody else's, which seems to be a bit more lavish and spacious and luxurious. And you say to yourself, wait a second, why does that person have this kind of a house? Is he really that much better than I am? Does he deserve it more than I? And perhaps you could say that it's almost a natural reaction on the part of the person to covet and to desire. How could the Torah ask us something which is almost contrary to the very nature of man? And I believe an answer is found in the comment of the Rikanti, who on this last commandment tells you to and reminds us of the verse in Tehillim, Psalms 119. And there in Tehillim, Kufiates, which goes alphabetically, and you have eight verses of each of the letters. When it comes to the letter Chaf, he says, Kol Mitzvosecha Emuna. All your mitzvos are emuna, literally trustworthy, or in this case here, he's saying are based upon emuna. In other words, how can we accept the Tenth Commandment? If you accept the First Commandment, the First Commandment is to believe that there is a God. If you believe that there is a God, and God creates each person, each person has a different tafkid. Each person looks differently. Each person's sets of genes are different. Each person's mission is different. Then we have to believe that accordingly, God gives each person what they need to actualize their potential. And therefore, what one person has, which is good for them, is just that, good for them. You might think that it would be good for you as well, but the first commandment tells us that Father knows best, the God who is Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, He knows best, and therefore, if He gave Ashiras, wealth, to one person, it's because that person needs that in order to help them develop themselves, and the next-door neighbor who might not have it, it's because for him it would not be good. The famous story of a person who visited the Chafetz Chaim, and the Chafetz Chaim asked him how he was doing in his parnasa, in his livelihood. And the person answered the Chafetz Chaim, Ken Zayn Besser. It could be better, Rebbe. And the Chafetz Chaim said, Nein. Not so. The way it is, that's the good. And that's the way it's supposed to be. <clears throat> and very possibly, if it was better, it wouldn't be better for you. Now, this is a very powerful concept. I can tell you to take a peek in the Gemara Sota, 9A at the bottom. So the Sota is talking about in the context of the Gemara, the suspected adulteress, 
hu nasna eneha bimisha enoroila. She went after someone who was not fit for her, and therefore that which she wanted, she didn't was not given to her. But more than that, Masha Biyodo, that which she had already, Nitlua Mimena, was taken from her. Why, says the Talmud? If a person focuses on desiring that which is not his, so not only are they not given that which they want, but oftentimes that which they have is taken away. And the Talmud brings a proof, interestingly, from Nochash Hakadmoni, from literally the serpent, who in the garden, unfortunately, wanted Chava, desired Chava, and was looking that Adam should eat from the tree and die, and therefore he'd be able to uh, have Chava. Now watch. We know that the Nochash, the snake, was given the punishment that aside from walking on the legs which he had, he would now crawl on his belly, but literally, you are to eat dust all the days of your life. Now what kind of a punishment is that? People ask. There's an abundance of dust and dirt and earth for the snake. So the traditional answer, the standard answer that's given is, God was saying to the snake, here, I'm giving you a lifelong supply of food. I am severing any and all relationship with you. But now, the Gemara is taking it on an additional level. What was the sin of the Nachash? The sin of the Nachash of the snake was a violation of Emuna. Once again, he didn't have faith in God. Not satisfied with what God had given him, he coveted the woman, wanted more. So what was the punishment that God gives him? Once again, if Emuna represents the Kesher, the relationship, now that relationship is being broken between God and the Nochash. A very powerful concept emerges from this week's parsha of Parshas Yisro. And to what may it be compared? Think about it for the moment. My neighbor is doing well on a particular drug. It would be nothing less than folly for you to please start taking that drug because what is good for them we can very well appreciate in the physical sense is not going to be good for you. And what's true in that realm is true in the greater realm in terms of each individual maximizing their potential. We're born an individual. We have to strive to accomplish what we need as individuals and we have to believe as we say in the ashray every day that you God the eyes of man are on you and you give each person 
their food be'ito, not only in their time, but you give each person what they need. And therefore, if a person has emuna in the first of the Ten Commandments, it's a healthy way to keep and to abstain from the Tenth Commandment, which too often can take hold of too many of us. A fresh look at the Ten Commandments makes our life much more meaningful. Shabbat Shalom to all.
It's a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Words from this week's parsha: Ishachad Belevechad. That is Shlaimi Dak. 17 minutes before 9 o'clock, JM and the AM. Don't forget, coming up, Table for Two with Naomi Nachman. The show will be on a video stream as well. So you could watch everything between 9 and 10 as Naomi Nachman does her demonstrations and, and interviews on Table for Two. It really is, uh, it's amazing what we've been able to add. Go to NahumSiegel.com. You can see the whole thing on the homepage once uh, the show starts at 9 a.m. Really is incredible. You could, and you can check out our um, YouTube channel, NahumSiegelNet, all one word, NahumSiegelNet. You can subscribe to it to follow all of our video programming. More and more of what we have to offer is being offered in video form. So take advantage. Why not? It's a lot of fun. I think you'll enjoy it. There are rumors flying about a major announcement coming up once the two football games on Sunday are complete. There is a rumor flying that there is a major announcement coming up once the NFL finishes its two championship games this coming Sunday. Here's what I'll say about it. I strongly suggest that in order not to miss any news that might occur, which is the second game on Sunday night, the AFC game? I think so. I'm not sure. In order not to miss any news after the AFC game, is New England the second game? Anybody here know? <laughs> You'd think this is a piece of information that <laughs> that would be commonplace among football fans. I think it's the second game. Anyway, in order to be privy to the major announcement after the football games on Sunday, make sure you are following on Facebook, Jewish Radio World with Nahum Siegel, and on Twitter, Nahum Siegel Net. Okay? That's it. That's all I'll say at the moment. But again, for those who suspect that there might be a major announcement, or if you've heard that there potentially could be a major announcement regarding the um, regarding something going on once the teams have been determined after these two games on Sunday, I strongly suggest your that you like the Jewish Radio World with Nahum Siegel Facebook page, the update page. And that you follow us on Twitter at Nahum Siegel Net. JM and the AM, please keep in mind Shalom Avraham ben Peshalea for a Fuhr Shlema. Shalom Avraham ben Peshalea for a Fuhr Shlema. 
Want to wish a happy anniversary one day late, and I apologize to Mati and Yassi Zwag yesterday on Tu Bishvat. They celebrated their 13th wedding anniversary. A happy wedding anniversary to Mati and Yassi Zwag from all of us here at JM in the AM. Uh, want to remind everybody that Yaakov Shweki this coming Monday will be part of JM in the AM. Yaakov Shweki this coming Monday will be joining us at some point to discuss his uh, brand new CD. So make sure to be tuned in this Monday, whether you have the day off or not, to us right here at JM in the AM.
Jakob Schwecki, who will be in our studio or by telephone, he'll be with us in one way, shape, or form next week on Monday morning to debut officially his brand new CD. That's Am Yisrael off of that CD entitled Kolot here at JM in the AM. Time to say good Shabbos. It's Journeys on this Arab Shabbos Parshat Yisro. Candle lighting at 436. Journeys at JM in the AM. Shining through the trees, a 
Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Make sure to be tuned in Monday when Yaakov Shweki is our guest here at JM and the AM. Very much looking forward to that. Don't forget that uh, Saturday Night Seagull is tomorrow night, starting at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on the stream, hosted by Executive Assistant Avrami. Matis has a fresh edition of JM Sunday with that amazing segment of News from Israel in English. 
uh, coming up between 7 and 9 a.m. this coming Sunday morning in our stream at jmnam.org. Make sure to be tuned in. Coming up next, Naomi Nachman with Table for Two, and it will be available on my website in video form so you could see all the action on my homepage. Have a fabulous Shabbos. Great weekend. Till next week, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. Yeah.